Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Welcome, welcome, welcome to our annual Christmas New Year special. It's Brendan here with Mark, episode 221, Friday, December the 24th, Christmas Eve, Mark, 2021. How are you? Do you have, is Santa coming tonight, Mark? Um, I think you had the days when you had to um, sneak out in the middle of the night and wrap the presents or put the presents under the christmas tree for your kids is that correct i have fond memories of uh of assembling various structures for the kids to play on of of collecting this is one of the advantages of being an exotic veterinarian that you can collect rabbit droppings in the week coming up to christmas and then sprinkle them liberally around the um around the base of the Christmas tree in little piles, just where you think a reindeer might stand. Gee, um, you, went to, you went all the way, but I could see your boys um, getting your microscope out and saying, <laughs> oh, that doesn't look like reindeer poo to me. Um, and hang on, we got a bit of coccidia in this one. What's happening? Uh, yes, Rudolph is not, is, is probably needs a bit of ivermectin or a bit of um, um, tortrazoral mark um, to keep him going. Yes, I um, did with my kids and it's a, it's a bit sad when you get to that stage of the kids when they're when they're thinking is this real um and i think what happened with our our kids is jane our eldest told sophie and said oh i heard at school that you know santa claus doesn't exist there's no such thing and you know deflated her and and but but, but she said, oh, don't tell mum and dad, you know. Um, and I think there was one year there when Sophie was sort of trying to pretend that she thought Santa was still real. But, gee, it was it was great those days, wasn't it, that excitement of them thinking, you know, they'd, they'd get so – we used to shut the hallway door and, um, you know, they'd, they'd be up at three or four or whatever, God, the <laughs> hour in the morning and um, we'd say, okay, we'll get up and I'd make a – you know, I'd make us coffees and that, but we'd, we'd wait for them. They'd queue up first and we'd say, I don't know whether I heard anything. Maybe he hasn't come yet. We can't, you know, um, we can't. Uh, and they'd open the door and then they'd see all the presents there. And, yeah, it was good times, Mark. Um, Sheer, unadulterated joy in the child's face when that happens. And then they grow up. <sighs> And then, then they, they grow, grow up and then they'll be doing the same for their kids if they ever have any children. And the, the other year I remember was we made or I assembled, speaking of assembling things, you mentioned a a big outdoor, out backyard um, gym, you know, a, a swing set basically. Um, yeah, yeah. And it was a really typical sort of Melbourne hot um um, Christmas Eve, um, and Annie made you know and we wait, we tried to put the girls to bed early, um, and it was still really stinking hot. And I'd left sort of the um, the assembled you know bits of iron outside, um, but um, unassembled sorry on on the ground. And it was such a hot day. But um, when I started putting it together, it was about nine o'clock at night. It was still burning hot, and um, I, you know I was getting 
second degree burns on my <laughs> hands trying to put this thing together and and they take ages some of these things and and he was sort of monitoring the kids trying to see if you know either <laughs> of them woke up so and those, those this whole swing set <laughs> when you accidentally drop one part of the construction yeah, up, they make yeah, a yeah. racket and you try to assemble the a-frame bit and put one bit to the other um, without a helper it can be quite Quite challenging, as I say. So, yes, but I suppose that's part of the fun of it all. You look back at in um, retrospect and think, "Gee, weren't they the weren't they the good old days?" Um, but at the time, there was a few swear words going on there, I think, um, with them. So, yes. So, welcome to all our listeners and our subscribers. Vetgurus dot com is the place to go. We'll we'll talk a little bit of veterinary. Um, talk here but um being our christmas special where a lot of it won't be veterinary talk um, and we'll just sort of reminisce a little bit about the year in review 2021 which is a challenging year as well as most people sort of say um although we've had some fun during the year and um you know i'm trying to constantly see that lighter side of things these days mark because yeah the alternative is pretty dark isn't it so um, I, I did say um, to you that that one of the the um things that i love about talking to you and i hope this comes across to the people who listen to us is that you are a glass glass half full sort of guy every time i talk to you i feel like now i can see the good side of that um i know i know i know i don't always have that effect on you <laughs> No, you do. Well, speaking glass half full, Mark, um, for our listeners, I'm, I'm um, being a Christmas special. I have a have an ale in front of me and I like to try something a little bit different. I've got a, I'm going to butcher this terribly, Schofferhofer um, Crystal Weissen um, wheat beer from Germany. Um, and it's it's quite nice, Mark. It's, it's quite nice. Um, and they're big, they're big, they're, they're 500 mil um, little um, <laughs> that should make for a these. good they're, podcast. They're, uh, yes, it, it the podcast could get better and better. Well, in my eyes, anyway, as I, as the screen gets a little bit blurry as we go through it. So, yes, yeah, so happy happy holidays to everybody, and uh, send us an email vetgurus at gmail.com and thank you to all our sponsors and our patrons and our, and our subscribers, Mark. And we do have a couple of news stories here, and then we'll just talk well talk a lot of crap as i usually say mark for the our christmas special here but i, I mentioned in our little pre-recorded or non-recorded um, little section before we started the recording that i do have a review we're trying to think about what we're going to chat about um for our christmas special but it, it, no doubt that we'll fill it full of lots of hot air and i have a review of a film mark and we haven't i haven't even mentioned this to you and i know there's a, a book we are going to chat about that has a film out that we will review shortly we'll review the book and then we will chat about the film once you have seen the film as well but i've seen the film called nitram mark um or some people pronounce it nitram and it's a film about um based on the life of a young man who eventually is involved with the largest mass killing in Australia market, um, Port Arthur. Um, so I think you know the film, and it it's it's fantastic. The film is fantastic, um, even though it's involved in a 
a very tragic event and this it's bittersweet the actual whenever I say anything with Port Arthur because my wife and I were at the actual place and, and the little tea room where he ended up shooting a heap of people um, about a month, if that, um, before the actual event, Mark. So it was a very close to the time when when we were um, visiting that particular area. But um, it's... Yeah, it's very hard to describe because it's it's it and it and it brings up a lot of really important points about you know the the and it doesn't show you any of the shooting at all. Um, it's it's more about the background of this person um, and how how you know uh, how um, mental illnesses and 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 the way people are um, sort of misunderstood um, and and the way they can develop into something tragic and, and something horrific I suppose as well um, which what occurred with the you know 1996 Port Arthur massacre and, and it ended up being um, a big push towards changing the laws here in Australia which um, unfortunately <laughs> we've ended up with more guns than after they changed the law mark um, there's much more guns around but yeah an amazing um, an amazing um, um, film it's just hard to describe and the and the the young star who plays the 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 um the person who um and i and i presume they've interviewed a lot of the the family and friends to provide this sort of background and 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 it is is somebody who was seen as different from very um young um age and he obviously was different by the look of it if if the script and the screenplay is to be believed um and yet you know they're they're often picked on, and um, you know you could see how he just ended up hating you know most of the world because of the way he was he was viewed. Um, but the Caleb Landry Jones, as an American actor, I think, who played the the key role, is fantastic, and it's and it's one of those films that you know from the start even though you know the actual what it's about um the whole whole lead up is it's the end of the film is when he when he sort of ends up at port arthur mark where he where he um ended up killing um i don't know what was it 30 odd people or so um um so that's at the end of the film um it stops there it's events leading up to that um port arthur massacre um and it's you just it, you just feel the tension building from the start, um, but it's just a, 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 yeah, it's one of the best films I've seen for a long time, Mark. Um, so I'd, I'd encourage you to see it, and I think it's it should be showing up um, where you are. Um, so um, I'll have to chase it up. It was it, the 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 I haven't seen it yet, but the, the certainly there was a lot of controversy about yes. the making of the film. And it did. It did. Um, I think the uh, premiere was. I mean, it won best film at the Cannes Film Festival. I think um, the, the the main award there um, this year or last year. Um, but it, I think the public debut was in Tasmania in in, in Hobart, which is near where the actual um, um, mass you know so shooting was where yeah it was i just double checked 35 people dead and at least 18 others wounded mark um yeah so um it, it um, so so having seen it that obviously one of the controversies was that um some of the families of the victims and some of the law enforcement officers uh involved and in, and in, uh 
indirectly and directly involved in that sort of work, um, they felt that it was celebrating a life, the life of a... No, not at all. No, yeah. no. Not not at all, yeah, and and I don't think it um, I don't think it um, put a bad, um, you know, it did mention about um, you know the, the the police because they were involved after it happened or whatever, um, it, and and even the, I thought it sort of underplayed um, the, the the bit about the loose gun controls at, at the time. It was only couple, two little scenes about where he decided, oh, I'm going to buy some guns, and he and he went into a gun shop and um, and he bought these semi-automatic rifles, two or three of them, and um, or actually and, and a couple of other guns. Um, and they said, where's your gun licence? Because you did need one. And they said, oh, I don't have, what's the gun licence? Um, and um, they ended up giving him the guns anyway and said, oh, you're just going to, you know, shoot it in your backyard or in the bush, so don't worry about it if you're just doing that. Um, and that was sort of the only thing they sort of said there, um, uh, the only sort of scene, or there was one other little scene um, related to that. But um, it was, um, yeah, it was oh, disturbing, yeah, um, the, 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 the actual film, but, but in... Uh, I was going to say in a good way, but that's poor choice of words there. But um, yeah, but I, I just didn't realise that whole background. Assuming that 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 it that it's correct, most of the the story they have there, and that um, you know he's, he was intellectually disabled. Um, he had um, and mental health issues as well. And um, you can and, and it sort of pieces pieces together how the whole process developed, and and you could see, uh, um, you know, oh. That's why it happened, you know. Not that it ever should have happened, but you can. And then the whole um, opens up the whole conversation about, you know, how do we deal with with people who are different um, in whatever way that may be, and um, as a society, you know, and 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 the way we do or don't treat them, um, the right or the wrong way. So it was, yeah. I, I found it very, very um, thought provoking and um you know it was extremely well made and um yeah i i I could see if you if you were a family of somebody who's a victim you certainly wouldn't want to see it and you'd you'd probably would would be angry um um which is understandable but I, i think it is an important film and it was made very um um I think it was made very sensitively. Yes, yes. Um, so I highly recommend it. Um, it's it's not a feel good film, unfortunately, but it's a. I think it's an important and and I, I and I I just like the fact that we that people were still having films being made that are that are related to events and 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 the discussions that should be had rather than just another you know Marvel film type thing you know blockbuster or a or a um or a um james bond film you know um it, it's great that funding is still being made and people are taking the bold step to still make these sorts of films mark um so yes yeah, so i i highly recommend it um but it it's it's sobering it, it's confronting um and it's um yeah it's certainly a little a little or more than just a little depressing as well but um some of the most important impo- some of the most important things in our lives are challenging and and um yeah. and but 
and it's an important I, I think it's a very important film and it's um I still haven't convinced Danny to watch it because she, I know she'll you know she'll be quite upset by it but um it's yeah it's something that I think um it's a In, very worthy right, film yeah have you have you been to Port Arthur since the massacre no and uh, no I haven't we have been to Tassie a few times and and yeah, it may be difficult. Yeah, yeah, I must admit. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know whether we will. And it is a, it was a sort of spooky sort of place anyway. So, um, do you want to talk about what Port Arthur is, Mark? Or it's a, it's a, to our overseas listeners. Yeah. It's a, it's and so a, it's in Tasmania. Yep. Exactly. Uh, an, an historic penal colony. Um, and it has a lot of, um, well, horrible history before 1996. Uh, the the uh, prisoners that were sent there uh, suffered the worst human deprivations, and uh, and it and it um, was a place of um, somewhat challenging um, ethics to start with. Uh, but I, I, Kate and I visited there. I think it was about um, five years, uh, maybe six years after, and um, the compounded history of the the penal colony on top of the the events of 1996 made it a very uncomfortable place to be it 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 i've never i'm not a superstitious person i don't believe in ghosts but it felt like there were spirits whirling around that place in abundance yes it was a well, I just we just found it very sad um place um and that was yeah before it obviously um and some of the yeah, some of the inhuman um, ways they kept some of these people who've been transported transported to you know Australia for stealing a loaf of bread, you know, and they ended up being in isolation and um, in this very tough um, area. And a lot of a lot of the convicts there died, didn't they, Mark? Because it was such a such a brutal place to be, um, and then it ended up being doubly brutal with with what happened with that that uh, mass mass murder um, episode. So, I think it's one. Yeah, I think you need to get out and watch it, Mark. Um, but um, be prepared for you know not it's it's certainly not an uplifting film, but it's something that I think is an important film. Yeah. So that's my review, Mark. <laughs> well, well, my my first news story is I think we've um we we may have talked about this at another time. I think maybe you and I talked about it off air, but it's the um the wonderful photograph of um a uh, beaut one of the beautiful birds of North America, um the uh, um a heron the uh, um, which species of heron? I don't want to say the wrong one. I hate saying the wrong one, but I can't see the specific species. I thought it was a blue heron, um, but it has an eel dangling from its uh, the base of its neck. And there was a famous photograph um, uh, uh, um, that's been circulating a number of in a number of forums over this last uh, few months, um, with the eel dangling out of the. Uh, of the poor bird's neck. Um, now, the photographs that have been circulating talk about the uh, eel bursting from the, the the heron, and it does look a little bit like a scene from an alien movie where something a living thing has burst forth from the body of the of the uh, 
of the host. But I honestly think this uh, poor heron has ha- has ingested um, maybe a fish hawk, maybe something else that's uh, caused an injury to its crop. Um, and it has a hole in its crop and it's swallowed the eel and the eel's just sliding out of a pre-existing hole in its crop. I think it's one of those things happening, Brendan. We regularly see, um, uh, it's not an uncommon thing for us in practice to see um, hand-reared parrots that, um, you know, have an overly, they, they, their hand-rearing mix is heated in the microwave. They get a burn in the crop wall, the, the that burn forms an eschar which falls off and then there's a hole and then the food, the birds avidly eat the food because they're hungry, but it's poked yes. straight out through the hole. So I think it's just an unusual wild event um, where this poor um, heron has uh, an injury to its uh, its crop and the eel it's been working really hard to catch and consume has just found a lovely escape hatch and slid out. and. I think it's the right place at the right time for the person who took the photos there, Mark. Um, you would have loved to be been the photographer seeing that, wouldn't you? So would I. Um, I like the comment in the article saying the heron looks surprisingly unbothered. Um, I think I'd be a little bit bothered if I had a huge alien um, popping out of my <laughs> esophagus or, or crop there, Mark. Um, yes. But a dramatic photo, nevertheless. Was there a series? There was a series of photos, wasn't there? Yeah, yes, yeah, it wasn't yeah. just the one um, yeah. with it. Yes. Um, so, yes, alien-like photo shows an eel dangling out of Heron's stomach in mid-air. That's your, you love a bit of clickbait, don't you? <laughs> love it. My one and only news story is about bilbies, Mark. I love these animals, aren't they? The, the greater bilbies. Um, and then uh, for those of you overseas and owners, the Australia's Easter Bunny, Mark, um, because it was a bit of a big push at one stage to replace the Easter chocolates, um, the Easter bunnies with Easter bilbies, and you could still buy them, can't you? But at one stage there was a few of the com- chocolate companies were producing Easter bilbies you could purchase, but I think the last few Easters, there haven't been that many, have there, Mark? I think they it's sort been, of gone we, out. Of, we were sort of trying to make it a bit of a family tradition and they've become hard to find. Yes, which is a little bit sad. But anyway, this article's about um, the reintroduction of bilbies um, because they've been thriving in a specially protected region allowing rangers to expand their range mark so um, their new homes in the states southwest of new south wales um 50 of them were released 18 months ago and the population um you know we always have this little debate don't we about um you know what numbers should you decide that um let's give up on this species or not. <laughs> um, 50 of them um and now the population's around about 118 of them so yeah um, and the usual suspects here, Mark, feral cats are thought to be involved with potentially killing them as well. But they moved them to a large, it's a pretty big area, isn't it, Mark? Nine and a half, 9,500 hectare fenced off area that they cleared from feral predators such as cats and foxes. Although I'm a little bit sceptical that you'd be able to completely eradicate um, cats and foxes from getting into those sorts of enclosures. Um, and I'm sure you've seen those those pictures, those sort of night vision cameras and that of, of foxes um, climbing over some of those fox 
proof fences supposedly mark you know i've seen ones where they've had those you know 10 or 12 foot fences where a fox with you know some sort of animal that's caught maybe a bilby or or a rabbit in its mouth it just saunters up to the fence and just casually climbs the fence and away it goes so but i think it's a bit of a good news story isn't it mark um that the fact that um the well, the predator-proof area <laughs> is has, seems to be working. I think it entirely is. It's um, uh, the only problem I have with this is that it um it does show because in each of these areas the there's a number of organisations that do this. Lead amongst them is the Australian Wildlife Conservancy, which has um, several places now with uh, predator-proof fences around a significant uh, area of. Um, of natural habitat, but invariably, when they do that, when they shut out the rabbits and the the um, the uh, foxes and cats, um, it's relatively pleasing to see how quickly many of the plants and animal species, uh, not least of which these um, small mammals, uh, um, are bounce back. Yes, they do in only you know uh, several years uh, not decades so i mean it does it does make me feel hopeful that if we can do it in in a more widespread way that um that there's a chance we'll we'll be able to see bilbies ourselves in the wild so do you think donald trump was ahead of his time building that fence the walls yeah (laughs) (laughs) but they'd still get through mark they would still get through i'm sure um yeah, so it's, I think that's a good news story about those bilbies and um, we're lucky, aren't we, with these? I think we've got fantastic species, those our, not just the mammals but the birds and the reptiles here in Australia, Mark. We're, we're very lucky with the species we have here. And I have got to give a quick shout-out to the Deputy Secretary of the New South Wales National Parks and Wildlife Service, anyone whose first name is Atticus is doing okay. So Atticus Fleming. And he's uh, um, expected um, three and a half thousand bilbies across three so- uh, sites in in New South Wales. Um, I reckon that's that his first name and the results of his actions. He gets a tick in the box for for me. I know an Atticus. That one of my clients is an Atticus as well. Is a um, a um, in the legal um, field because I think they name often name their child Atticus after the famous movie, which I've gone blank with, Mark. Um, Atticus Finch the, in To yes, Kill a Mockingbird. Yes. yes, To Kill a Mockingbird, yes, based on the famous book, yeah, and a very good film as well. So that's my second review, um, to, the original To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, very good film, Mark. Very good film. <laughs> You're punching <laughs> We'll have to start a film. We'll have to start a film podcast as well, I think, yes. Um Okay, so <laughs> we don't, our main topic, well, we don't have a main topic as usual for our Christmas New Year special, Mark, our, our end of year special, but I think you wanted to have a little bit of a chat about a, a particular book, which a recent film is out that I have seen that you will be seeing shortly, so we'll do our film review soon. So you want to chat about the book? 
Well, we both have read this book, and we've both read it multiple times. I, I read it uh, several times as a very young man, which is decades ago, um, and more recently in preparation to watch the film, I read uh, Frank Herbert's Dune once again, um, and I, I, I um, it's one of those books that many times when I've reread some of the favourite books of my youth, Brendan, um, they've fallen short. My, I obviously was um, much more impressionable and and uh, open to imaginative suggestion when I was young. And as I've gotten older and more cynical and grumpy, uh, my you've got no imagination. <laughs> <laughs> but this book didn't fall into that category. I still ah. massively enjoyed it, um, and uh, and and the. You know that that science fiction genre that we both uh, um, take such pleasure in. Um, I still think it stands up, uh, even fifty years after it was written, um, as a, more than fifty years when it's six to sixty years after it was written, um, as a an outstanding example, an outstanding uh, foundational example of the genre. Um, it it does a great job too of drawing in so much contemporary. Uh, science and and politics, um, and there are allegories to the the world at the time that uh, Frank wrote it, which all make it very interesting and and uh, pleasant to analyse. But it stands alone as a wonderful story, and I rate it highly, Brendan. That's very interesting because I, as you know, I just finished Power reading it um, again. And yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it as well. And I thought it was very, um, it had good depth, didn't it? Um, and apparently, and I read a little bit about um, the writing of it and, and how long it took him to write it and how his, his method of, because I always find it fascinating how how these authors um, go about the process of, of producing their, their books. Um, he, he was a bit of a stickler um, for research, and and he, I think it took him four or five years to write this, and he and he had lots and lots of um, he read a huge amount of um, books in all sorts of genres, mark politics and religion and ecology and technology and stuff like that, um, and and you can see how it's all he's all sort of put all that in there because um, it's it's got lots of layers, I think. Um, I, 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 I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yes, it, it does have a um, an interesting religious undertone there, with with and, and I think that follows in. I'm just starting to write um, read um, the the second book in the in the series of six that he did, um, and the second one's called Dune Messiah. Um, and, and so you can see that religious co- sort of connotation there, um, where the main character ends up turning a little bit dark. Um, uh, yeah, I, I really enjoyed it, and I think one of the things that they they um, um, that's very interesting about it is there's a there's a lot of sort of ecology in there, isn't there? That I think that the analogy they have with with the mining of the spice on this this world called Dune, which is Arrakis, is a Dune's the other name for this um, planet. Um, they they sort of relate to um, oil, um, Mark, and and and, um, um, and and comparing it to you know should we be mining or not, and um, it's it's yeah it's yeah I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I, I think he's a very good writer um, or was <laughs> he's dead now, but um, and um, 
it's one of those books where it keeps you reading, and, and it, but it's not superficial. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Uh, are, are you going to go on and read was, the, the rest of the market? Well, I, when I was younger, I did read all the um, all of Frank Herbert's June um, tomes, um, and I did. I was so into them that I did start cracking into uh, the 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 next lot of books that were written by uh, his son and and uh, and a, an assistant, Kevin Anderson, a science fiction writer, um, and um, and crikey's, didn't that that uh, that little threshold? Um, I, I felt like I'd um, betrayed. I felt I'd betrayed the original ones, and I know now that I've done a little bit of reading that um, there's a there's a, a lot of controversy. A lot of the the fans of Dune cannot get enough Dune and are happy to take Dune wherever they can can get it and whoever will write it for them. And there's, um, you know, there's the diehard stalwarts who only want to read the the authentic Frank Herbert stuff and sort of look down a little bit on the writings of his son as being inconsistent with canon, Brendan. Yes, and you did mention that to me because I was... I think I said to you, I'm going to try and rip through, or slowly rip through all these, all these six books, and then um, I've, I then only have another, you know, twelve to fifteen to go after that. So it'll be a while before I read them all. But when you mentioned a couple of things about um, the son Brian and the fact that those those additional novels um, just do not seem to be anywhere near as as good, um, then I probably will stop um, at the the last of the originals um, with them. Be interesting to hear yeah, so what our, our um, listeners, you know, yes, uh, send us a message and tell us whether you like uh, um, the to first of all what you think of the Dune itself, Dune the original novel, and then what you think Brian and Kevin have done with it subsequently. If you if if I'm off mark thinking that um, they haven't quite held up the standard, let me know. And it's a, the whole Dune um, universe is interesting because it's got so many, um, again, layers. I mean, he was he was the first person to, to win the, the Nebula Award, which is the science fiction awards, which were um, for best novel. Um, Frank Herbert was the first winner of that. That's when they decided to sort of start that. That um, that um, that award, um, and one of the remakes, uh, one of the the, the, the film adaptions, um, the David Lynch one, Mark, and, the, and I think you you watched it, didn't you? Recently, recently watched the nineteen eighty four film um, has been voted worst movie of all time um, in several several polls, and it was it was com- it was on. Um, TV here, Mark. Actually, last week or the week before, and I, I flicked over and watched a little bit, and it was comical. It was, it was just bad. It was a really bad. Um, so, yes. Um, so it's the, the worst of times and the best of times. <laughs> so I'll be very interested to sit hear your review of the movie. Film adaption by Denis Villeneuve, um, which I have seen and I think you are seeing very soon. And um, yeah, we will um, hear a review of that with the Vet Gurus podcast movie show um, review shortly, Mark. So I think we should jump into about um, our other general 
chat about 2021, Mark, and um, what a year it's been and in the vet industry. And, gee, uh, it's, it's been a complete, you know, schmozzle, isn't it, as far as, um, you know, t- everything being turned upside down and, and the, it really pushed along the, the, um, the um, remote um, consultations and, and curbside consults, gee. They, um, well, you know, I meant we, to ask you about that. Who, that. That was one of the hallmarks of this year, Brendan, and, uh, and, and, and I was very keen to um, – I've spoken to a number of vets about the way that they've dealt with that, and I had a couple of um, instances myself this year with the curbside consult, and I, I said to the people I was talking to that I thought – you know what, if if in a perfect world, if you'd come to me a, a couple of years ago and said, look, we're going to arrange it so you just get the animal brought in and you can speak to the owner on the phone um, and they you won't have them in the room, I would have gone, my goodness, that's the best thing ever. That will save so <laughs> much time. But the practical yeah. reality of it is that um, I found myself often and, you know, I often bark up the wrong tree as it is, but I often was going down the wrong path. It, it pointed out to me the amount of subtle non-verbal body language I must pick up on in the consult room um, that I was missing out on those curbside consults. Um, and and I think there's also a bit of a, you know, mis, uh, misdirection by degree. So you would, you know, go through your series of questions, asking about the history, asking about... and. And even when the answers might be a certain way, you could tell when the person's in the room that they were not necessarily being completely uh, honest. <laughs> and and so you would pursue that um, in such a way that didn't embarrass them. But when they're on the curbside, you don't even realise that what they're saying isn't true and you move on to something else and you completely miss that whole avenue of investigation or effect. I've, I've found myself several times going it, the wrong yeah, way. It can, yes. You, you, or that um, you don't realise what their what their main concern is, yeah, um, that, it, that it's underplayed there and you you misinterpret what what they're concerned about, yes. Um, and, and so there's a disconnect, isn't there, Mark? Um, so, it, it, yeah, it can be a challenge. But, yes, uh, uh, exactly the same thoughts in that you'd think, gee, isn't that the perfect world that you don't have to talk, you know, you don't have to see the clients face-to-face <laughs> anymore. Well, how good is that? Um, but, yes, it's been a, been interesting um, and um, and challenging. And, and I think initially, you know, we had the heavy lockdowns here in Melbourne. It was... Um, it was, um, you know, um, some of the members of the public were were, were difficult um, to, to deal with. Um, but as time went on, I think um, it, it, it did settle down. But I think it was the same worldwide in that we saw the outpouring on the on the forums of, of vets um, and veterinary technicians, nurses especially, um, being being abused. Um, Verbally and sometimes physically, um, for, from from clients when they just didn't see the fact that hey, we're trying to do our job and and it, and it, and it's challenging for everyone. Um, but I think with many many profession, professions or any or, or or industry general, it was the same, wasn't it? Where where people were on edge um, with 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 all the changes due to COVID and all the restrictions and 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 contact or lack of contact um, with with businesses, and um, it it 
played on people's minds and, and, and it's made, made things difficult and it's been – and I think that's part of the difficulties of dealing with this year is is, is trying to cope with that um, and cope with it certainly mentally but also physically as well because, yeah, I, I think sometimes those curbside consults did manage to be um, performed quicker um, but some of them ended up been a lot longer um, because of the whole process of looking at the animal, having a, 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 an assistant, a nurse, a technician helping you with it, taking the animal back out, getting some more information from the client um, and occasionally even having to then look at the animal again because they they, they wanted it seen for something else and, and they didn't convey that to you correctly um, in the first instance. Um, it was definitely but, the um, case. There was a bit of a dichotomy, I reckon. The sort of wellness examinations, which are often slowed down by those uh, human interactions with someone in the consult room, you could do those really, really quickly um, and do them properly still, but just because you didn't weren't slowing down to explain everything, you could whip through them. But the more complex cases, they ended up taking much, much longer than they normally would because of that, the absence of the subtlety of nonverbal communication. Um, yeah, it, it really changed some of the aspects of uh, the way timing in a veterinary practice would have to work. Yes, and I could see, I don't think, we will do that long term, but I can see that um, clinics, especially the, some of the larger ones, they, they may continue to have some variation or tweak the curbside consultation method. You know, the the drive drive through clinic <laughs> with their with with the little um, little door there, like the McDonald's um, of, <laughs> of, of the vet clinic. There, we have. Um, you know, I have to be a bit careful that we have, you know, we're in a little shop front, as you know, Mark, and we have a pizza shop two doors down. So, you know, <laughs> I'd go, I'd have, I have a client that's not, that's uh, running a little bit late, and then I see the car pull up outside, and um, and the nurses are busy treating another one, and I run out front, and they, they wind the window down, and I'd say, um, you know, are you here with, are you here with Thumper? And I say, no, I'm just here for, a, I'm picking up one with the lot, please, um, from the pizza shop. <laughs> oh, sorry, yeah. Um, yeah, because they'd be parking in our space in front of us. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a, it's, yeah, it was a complete, and, and the same with, um, not that we ended up doing it, I just did the uh, occasional phone consultation. Um, I think, did your clinic do the, do the um, e, um, the the um, you know Zoom consultations? It was the, a little uh, bit of a online stop, consultation. A bit of a stop start thing, mate. It was a, it was like we could see that that was a way that um, you know what initially triggered it for us at the beginning of the year was that um, some of the staff had to have that sort of a consultation with their doctor. Um, and we thought, well, um, if the medical profession is going down this path, particularly for maybe some um, uh, uh, refills of arthritis medication, that we could get the person to uh, um, have a look at the, 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 the animal through Zoom, talk to them about certain things, um, and maybe do things along that line. But it never took off, Brendan. It never... It, it was, we were struggling enough just to do curbside consults. So, um, but I can see more than the persistence of curbside consults, I can see those uh, remote um, consultations um, and they do run very 
close to the wind. I know a number of jurisdictions in Australia here have uh, some concern about the nature of those remote consults, um, but I can see that being part of the future of the of veterinary practice uh, here in Australia. Yes, and I'm sure that the human medical field have certainly embraced it, haven't they? Um, with with those um, consult, remote consultations, um, and I'd be interested to see what their thoughts are on the um you know the legislation regarding you know do, doing remote consultations and, and diagnosis in there for humans as well mark so it is a challenge um with that so yeah so that was one big 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 change wasn't it um for this year with that um and i think the other one that was then related to that and it's not just our industry as well as um the trouble with um employing people mark and the, and the lack of and the huge amount of positions available and yet the lack of people um to fill those positions both veterinarians and technicians as well um and the same has been happening with a lot of a lot of um industries even now that we're you know getting towards that supposed COVID normal or whatever they want to call it um, and how, how do you think that's happening with, with some of the other industries Mark do you think it's just that people are, are thinking no I don't want to go and work in a in a in a retail situation anymore I want to work from home more um, so I'm not going to take up that position as a in, in the cafe etc um, why do you think there's still so many positions available in, in sort of the service industries especially, um, not just the professional industries like vet, veterinarians? Well, I feel much more confident talking to you about the, our profession, but, but I think that it is, prof and the reason for that is because I think it's a little bit profession or vocation specific. I think a lot of those service industry jobs that are, that are you know, uh, to do with um, uh, meals or coffee or uh, that sort of part of the industry, um, the the workers in that area have had to deal with a degree of uncertainty about their labour and uh, and in many instances have moved on to more certain forms of labour um, and there just is not the, the uh, confidence or good faith that they'll take those jobs and they'll be there consistently. I think there is. I mean, just over the last few weeks uh, back in Newcastle, my hometown, um, uh, there's been outbreaks and concern about shutdowns. And so that un constant background uncertainty makes uncertain labour, casual work, a little bit less, I don't know, less uh, workable, less... less uh, um, takes away people's confidence that it's going to be a long-term part of their life. So they do. They look for other jobs. Yes, which... But I don't think that's the only thing back to <laughs> that's happening in our profession. <laughs> yes, <God. laughs> yes. Um, I was hesitating there because I was I'm still trying to work out what the process is with, you know, t t two and a half years ago, three years ago, um, those arguments about uh, let's we've got too many vets, um, too many veterinary technicians. Um, 
any university who was thinking of increasing their numbers, um, their number of um, applicants, their number of students um, is crazy. And a university that was going to open up a new veterinary school um, was absolutely ludicrous, um, Mark. And now it's the opposite, isn't it? Um, that they can't get enough of them. So how does that work, Mark? Well, I think it's pretty clearly the case that um, the uh, the the uh, average graduate, the median graduate, um, is is not not providing the same full time, full uh, uh, vocational life contribution to the veterinary profession as is their perfect choice to do so. Um, so, what I mean more specifically by that is that um, you and I, when you and I graduated, we graduated, took a full-time job, and we've been in full-time employment pretty much ever since, for either employment or uh, owning a business. I think a lot of the more recent graduates, for a whole suite of reasons, um, cultural, uh, um, uh, workplace stress, a whole bunch of reasons, um, they don't stay in the profession full-time for their whole uh, uh, you know their whole career. They do other things, and I hasten to add what little research has been done into this. Um, I know some people uh, put their hand up and and say, "Oh, that's because there's more women. There's more women in the profession now, and they uh, leave and become uh, mothers, and and that's why." Um, what little research has been done suggests that's not the case at all. That there's no difference um, in uh, the frequency with which uh, either gender leaves the profession. Um, the blokes aren't staying in it any longer than the women. Um, so yeah. uh, it's a it's a, an absolute characteristic of the profession. Um, and and I think that means that where you know, uh, say we think of our careers as a single unit, um, maybe the graduates now are only. Um, only able to contribute um, to the veterinary profession uh, a 0.3 or 0.35 or 0.4 of a, a unit of a complete career before they move on to something else. Um, so that makes it like we need twice as many, three, nearly three times as many vets to do the same job. Um, I think that has a whole lot of other consequences too that um, I think that it's uh, more difficult for um, for veterinarians to um, you know become if 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 they're moving on to other professions and using the skills they learn at university and in the first few years of their veterinary profession to move on to other things um, they 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 don't have the time or the opportunity to make mistakes like you and I did um, and develop a vast experience that guides uh, a, a professional who's been in a profession for, you know, the large part of their career. So it changes the intensity, I reckon, as well. Um, so, yeah, I think there's lots of things going on with the profession and, and I don't know that, that anything any of us can do is going to change a lot of that just overnight. I think that um, we have to look to... Um, some fundamentals of the profession um, and look to see where we do want to be in 5, 10, 15 years because I think 
these changes, uh, uh, it's going to take that long to, you know, let's say we change the number of students that go into university next year. It's going to be nearly 10 years, I suppose, before uh, those cohorts of increased number make a significant difference to the total number of registered veterinarians. So, um, so I think... Okay. Go on. Do you think it will bounce back the other way at some stage that we'll have an oversupply with all the universities cranking up the numbers of graduates um, and and even some new veterinary schools starting up over the next few years? Do you think it'll just keep, you know, wavering um, or, or will reach a bit of a steady state? I think that, um, you know, things go in cycles and I wouldn't want to predict what's, you know, I'm, I don't know enough or I'm not wise enough to know for sure where it'll end up. Um, but I, I, I cannot see there being an oversupply of veterinarians for the next 15 years. My limited understanding of the numbers and the way things change, the, and and as well, I suppose, um, the, the pressures of society, what society expects of veterinarians, what the number of pets people are going to have, um, I can't see there being a, um, a, a change in that whole formula which lessens the pressure on veterinarian, the, the number of veterinarians for yeah, 10 or 15 years. So there may be a, an oversupply a couple of decades down the track, um, but, but I don't see that being an immediate problem for us to deal with. We're going to be dealing with shortages of uh, veterinarians and support personnel for the next, for quite a while, I reckon. So my next question, Mark, gee, I'm quizzing you here <laughs> in our Christmas special here. Um, well, it's good for so us to look think, forward to the future, Brendan. Do you think it will get back to... You mentioned about, you know, when we graduated, we, you know, went to full-time and we stayed full-time and we worked too many hours. Um, do you think that will ever happen again? Not the working too many hours bit, but um, the percentage swing back towards um, full-time positions or do you think it's that, um, that sort of part-time, full-time working, you know, and, and the increasing number of veterinarians and nurses, technicians work in multiple practices too, you know, part-time at two or more practices, um, which are, which I've seen as a trend as well. Um, do you think that will that will swing back as well or not? Um, I can't, same deal. I can't see that changing for a long time. I think um, uh, that, that working less than full-time definitely improves the quality of life of veterinarians. Um, and I think that, um, that that's going to be something that is going to be almost a demand of new graduates that um, that I don't want to work uh, every day. I need to have some downtime. I need to have time to um, to to uh, reflect and build on all the stuff that we've done. Um, and yeah, I don't I don't see it going back to the you know way that we did it or, or some uh, modernized version. Um, for a very long time, if at all, ever. Mm. Time doing your photography, Mark. <laughs> More time to take photos. This is not a bad thing. Which which reminds me, Brendan, I've been 
I've been thinking you might have to bleep this bit out of the recording, but um, I no, um, no swear words, please. <laughs> I, I've never. Well, we do. A, we we we're we're notoriously. I know how many uh, questions you get emails all the time from people who want to advertise on our podcast, and um, and we have our wonderful sponsors who have locked up all the available advertising space we have, so we don't take on any others, but um. Uh, uh, pe- if people want to know about the animals that we photograph or even the places that I've been, they should look at my Instagram. I'm going to shout out my Insta at Mark's uh, Photography um, and anyone who's listening to our uh, podcast who wants to have a look at it, get on there. Well, send me the link, Mark, again, and I will post that in the show notes there and uh, they can look at some of the amazing photos that you um, produce and you continue to amaze me with the quality of your photos mark you've you've um and i know i say it every year you you dramatically improved um over the last few years and you've surpassed me in light years (laughs) as far as the quality of your your pictures there so i'm very jealous but but Uh, not only the actual pictures but where you get to go um, take your pictures and what what you see Um, and i think that's that's the that's the dirty secret isn't it of photography um it's the big part about it is that it gets you out there to places and, and seeing all these wonderful animals and places um and that's that's where most of the enjoyment is is involved and then you you if you're lucky enough you manage to snap a few good pics while you're there exactly right brendan the places are without a doubt it's it's um you know there have been times in my professional life at the veterinary practice where it's almost like this is a, a you know um, my environment it's a, a, um, a happy place I can't even describe it it feels most appropriate um, these days I get those sensations when I'm out in the natural world and I see the light and the animals and the bush and uh, yeah I love that stuff so get out there um, and do it yourselves balance your life do your, your veterinary stuff but do the other stuff as well yes I can't agree I, any more um Exactly. So, what we've what I've asked you to do, and, and I haven't prepped here, Mark, um, at all, as you can tell. Um, every end of end of year, when we talk about what might be the craze or the pet of the year uh, for next year, so any ideas, Mark? Any any thoughts generally about um, what's going to happen next year with um, two thousand and twenty one with, with um, pets of the year? Um, with the trend I've seen, Mark, and, and it's a bit of a again a COVID related thing. I just cannot believe the one the price that people are paying for some of the pets, um, even still now at the end of two thousand and twenty one, especially the dog and cat owners, um, and especially for the the crossbred breeds that they um, like to call a breed, um, and we know what breeds we're talking about there, Mark. All the um, cackapoodle, coodle, doodle doos, um, thousands of dollars, and I'm, I'm sure it's the same worldwide. I just cannot believe the price that people are paying for some of these these um, animals, um, and I'd, I'd. I don't know whether that's going to change at all, Mark. Um, back to the days where it was, you know, uh, um, you could get even some of the purebred um, 
breeds at, at the local shelter, uh, couldn't you, for 50 or a couple of hundred dollars instead of several thousands of dollars. Um, and I, I, I don't know, I, it's always grated with me, Mark. I, I just uh, find it annoying, um, the whole call in some of these breeds, um, these crossbreds and, and classifying them as, as breeds. Um, what's your thoughts on that? <laughs> I think you know my, I think um, like many of the things we talk about, we are singing from the same songbook here. I, I, I um, despair of the uh, um, marketing that goes around the, 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 uh, the various crossbred dogs that... Um, and look, the dogs we see lots of them, and they 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 some of them are really nice dogs. Some of them uh, um, seem to have the you know the argument from many of the people that breed them is they're trying to uh, harness the the best features, the best pet features of each of the two breeds. Um, but in my experience, they. Uh, it's a uh, you know scattergun approach. They some dogs have those both positive uh, aspects of each of the breeds, and some of them, uh, some of the unfortunate ones, have the negative aspects of both those breeds. Yes, and it's it is unfortunate when you do have an owner who's purchased one of those dogs that it doesn't have the best temperament, Mark, because they're often purchasing them. F- thinking that you know they're going to get this little cavalier king charles equivalent um personality where it's a, a, a you know it, it, it wouldn't wouldn't say boo to you know a fly and and yet they get something that's um got behavioral issues and and or and or you know aggressive so um and you can see the that they can get become not unexpectedly fairly um distressed at that um have you have you Witness that, and I think that's uh, definitely that's been the case. That um, uh, there is one of the things that happens with these crossbred dogs is that very, very little attention is paid to their temperament, and often dogs that that have a have other characteristics, maybe color, maybe size or a shape, are bred together to accentuate those visual features without. Um, paying suitable attention to the temperament of the uh, the um, the parent dogs, and I think that whole that's probably the area that I see um, continuing to be to be more and more significant. The the behavioural aspects of COVID pets um, as those pets grow up, um, as people get new animals into the family, and as they particularly with the the uh, avian and exotic. Uh, COVID pets. I think a lot of, you know, the the clients are going to spend an awful lot of money and time making sure the enclosure is good, making sure the animals have appropriate um, uh, uh, environmental enrichment, spend an awful lot of time interacting with those animals, and then they're going to have to go back to work. And we're going to see whether it's dogs, whether it's cats, whether it's rabbits or birds, I think we're going to see an increasing cohort of poorly adjusted separation anxiety focused animals and uh, and I suspect that will be a little bit of a focus uh, over 2022 for unusual pet veterinarians. And I think that's we've seen that this year as well that the the increase in the behavior consultations mark and and um, spending a lot of time trying to trying to help clients and their pets with 
with those issues in that we have an animal that either doesn't doesn't have the best personality um, and, and or it doesn't fit um, the family that it's been um, attached to. Um, so I, I agree in that those sorts of things are going to just increase um, over the next year. So if, if you're studying for your um, behaviour specialist um, registration and, and um, um, qualification, I think it's a, um, not a bad thing to do, Mark. Um, I think you'll have plenty of plenty of work. Having said that, I, I, it's not something I I would have ever liked to study for. Um, I, I I think I'd struggle with with dealing with doing the behaviour consults. We have some excellent registered specialist behaviour vets here in Melbourne, Mark, that we often refer clients to, and they'll do do home visits most of the time, or when when there's no lockdowns and. Um, they do a fantastic job, but I, I don't think I have the personality for it. I think I'd find it very draining. Um, I think you need to be a, a special sort of veterinarian to be a behaviour vet. Although you have to be a special veterinarian to be an exotics vet, don't you, Mark? The two go hand in hand. And um, <laughs> do you think? Um, do you think that uh, one of the things? that I've noticed in that because we essentially what you describe is a similar thing for us. But um, I, I often find that I struggle with the behaviour, the, the behaviour, the veterinarians who do behaviour work may not have a, as deep an appreciation of the varied species we have to deal with. Um, and so a lot of it does seem to fall back on to veterinarians have an interest in that area. Yes, I think it is increasing um, the, the the knowledge and understanding um, that the behaviour interest veterinarians or behaviour specialist veterinarians have with with the unusual pets, and we've had a little bit of a crossover here in Australia with some of our conferences and online um, continuing education where we've helped. Um, where we've had we've had behaviour vets um, speak, um, and um, I think it's opened their eyes. Um, to be honest, to to some of the some of the exotic pets, and they didn't realise um, that the unique um, ecosystems that we need to keep them in um, at home. So uh, I think I think it is getting there um, with that as well. But it's um, yeah, it's um, something that needs to work on. And, and I know we we we're we probably are exotics behaviour vets every day, aren't we, Mark, <laughs> with, with the clients and the pets that we see um, all the time. Um, so getting back to what the pet of the year next year or the craze for next year, I, um, I kicked it off. We're talking about the the um, crossbred brogs, dogs that, we, um, that I'm not particularly keen on. Um, I don't know, Mark, I'm going to, Call call out the same one that I, I think I've mentioned another year and um, bearded dragons, Mark. Um, bearded dragons. We're seeing an increase in number of bearded dragons with new pet owners, um, new reptile owners, sometimes new pet owners. I haven't had a pet before, and that a lot of new clients um, and new animal owners where they're choosing a bearded dragon as their pet, Mark. So that's my my um, pet of the year craze for next year, Mark. Um, what have you got? Anything? Um, I, I, this is is um, completely wishful thinking and and uh, personally indulgent. Um, I'd like to see a few more um, uh, marine aquaria 
Um, I have developed, I'm developing a real interest in um, corals and how they grow in, in a captive situation. And I'd love to do a little bit of veterinary work that way. So I don't know that it's a genuine likely trend, but crikey, it'd make me happy if I did do some of that work. So are you talking about just a query with, with coral? And yeah. Coral are the animals that we have in there? Yeah. They, 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 so you're going to be a coral veterinarian. Exactly. A reef tank specialist. That is fascinating, yes. Um, and you know what you'll need to do um, to, to get any any kind of traction, Mark, as, as a reef specialist? You'll have to bleach your hair. <laughs> <laughs> Brendan, it's gradually bleaching itself. <laughs> <laughs> well... I think we need to think about signing off on our because my my beers are running out here, Mark. Um, my, <laughs> our Christmas and New Year special, and um, I just I just saw a um, the only final thing I have to say I saw a um, an article uh, a, um, a, a local man was admitted to hospital here, Mark. Um, do what do I tell you about this? I don't think we did. He had he had ten toy horses shoved up his rectum. Did you? I didn't tell you about this. No, you didn't. Uh, Well, doctors have described his condition as stable. Uh, So I think with that, we will talk to you all next week. Merry Christmas, everybody. Happy holidays. Merry Christmas. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Listener.